0: Welcome back to Foster.Minnesota's Let's Talk, a podcast that brings you valuable resources for prospective and current adoptive and foster families, as well as professionals. My name is Chris, and I'm an education coordinator at Foster.Minnesota.
1: And I'm Sunny, also an education coordinator at FAM.
0: Sunny, we have a special guest joining us today who has spent years advocating for youth, families, parents, and professionals involved in foster care and adoption. She has such a robust history and plays such an important role with the community we work with. Our guest's first education into the world of child welfare came in high school when she was placed into foster care in Colorado and aged out of care in 1985. As a graduate of foster care, Michelle is passionate about the need for system reform and the essential role that young people can take in leading
1: child welfare to more effective youth and family focused strategies. Well, she, you know, she really sounds fabulous. So tell me who this is.
0: Well, I will leave it up to the Michelle Chalmers to introduce herself. Hey, Michelle.
2: Hey, what a kind and generous introduction, Chris and Sonny. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here today. I think we're gonna have a good time. You know, um, I'm not sure if you know, but yeah, you know, I worked at Fam for several years. Uh, I think. 2002 to 2008. So it's been really fun for me to see how much the agency's grown. And in terms of services and impact that you guys are having, thanks to you guys and your whole team over there for the impact you're making in the community.
0: Yeah, and what was our name when you started? Was it MinAdopt
2: or? Oh, it was, yeah, it was MinAdopt. Okay. Yep, and I'm gonna do my very best to not call you MinAdopt (laughs) during the course of this conversation. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because it was Minadopt when I started and it was min adopted when I left.
0: <laughs> there you go. You're old school
2: then. <laughs> so if it's OK, it, you know, it may, you know, prattle on a little bit. But I do want to give a little context in terms of introducing myself, because I think for the purpose of our conversation, um, I think it's sort of important to talk about the many different hats that I've worn in the child welfare system. Cause I've, I come at this stuff from several different roles. So I have been a foster kid and a foster parent. I've been a host home parent to youth who became homeless after aging out of care. And I was almost an adoptive parent. <laughs> I have worked in residential treatment and youth shelter as a direct staff. I've delivered home-based services to prevent placement. I've led programs aimed at developing the leadership capacity of youth in care and bringing their voice into policy and practice. I've done direct child-specific recruitment and home study assessments and ongoing support to foster and adoptive families. I've provided workshops and trainings and keynotes on all kinds of topics over the years. I've had leadership roles at a treatment foster care agency. I designed and directed a federal demonstration project uh, to increase rates of adoption for teens who were under state guardianship. That's what I did at FAM. Um, And I also co-founded a nonprofit to provide permanency services um, to youth and families who face barriers to equity in child welfare. And then uh, lastly, but I guess you know, certainly not least important. I'm currently in a temporary position at Minnesota Department of Human Services, helping write child foster care licensing guidelines to help improve consistency um, and delivery of those services across the state. So all of that is to say that I have had really wonderful opportunities um, in my career over the last 33 years, and and I'm kind of (laughs) old.
1: whatever. (laughs) You know we're all 29. We are all 29. Oh that's right we're
0: all 29. Yes yes, yes. getting better with age.
2: (laughs) I am right that's
0: for sure. Well Michelle it's so good to have you with us today we're so happy you're our guest and we're really looking forward to hearing about everything Michelle so let's get started. So how did your foster care journey begin? And I know the journey thing is
2: that Eh. word. Journey's okay. It has been a journey. It has been a journey. But I'd like to just, you know, so clarify very clear, you know, my journey didn't begin the way many journeys do, where you, you know, anticipate and pack and plan for your big, (laughs) exciting journey. Um, So my initial contact with foster care happened uh, actually when I was 15 and attempted to get some support for my family. My mother was uh, very much not interested in help that the child welfare system had to offer. So really quickly I ended up in foster care where I stayed um, until I aged out and went off to college. I was 15 um, and didn't quite understand that my professional education for my career was actually beginning. Uh, My personal foster care experience was not unusual. and that the workers told me that they were gonna move me about 30 miles away from my friends and my school and my job and my community because they didn't have a home for a teenage girl available nearby. Then they told me that if I could find somebody to license, they'd run out and do it if I could, if I could find someone. So me being me, I marched <laughs> over to my former junior high and left a note on the teacher's lounge table And it said something to the effect, Michelle Chalmers needs a foster home. If if you know anyone who's interested, call so-and-so at the county. As it turns out, my former English teacher uh, and her husband stepped up, and I lived with them all the way through high school. So as I was preparing for this podcast, for this interview, and thinking about it, I realized that I guess I was actually my own first child-specific recruitment case. Yeah, you got the whole
0: thing started.
2: Right. I started with myself in 1982. I didn't start the field, but certainly my first experience with it was experimenting on myself. (laughs) Wow. That's, that's pretty amazing. So is that how Ampersand
1: Families was born? And how did this agency come about?
2: Oh boy. We're going to have to go back a little further to answer that. So kick back. Have a little popcorn. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Ampersand's uh, origin story goes back a little bit further. And it actually, interestingly, takes us back to FAM. So at that time, I was working uh, at FAM on a program called Our Voices Matter, was building advocacy and leadership skills with youth who had experienced foster care and or adoption. And in the course of doing that work, knowing that I had lots of experience hearing from young people uh, about what works and doesn't work in child welfare, the department of human services reached out because they were interested in applying for a federal demonstration project. So it was what's referred to as an adoption opportunities grant uh, at the children's bureau. And in that particular year, every year when they issue those uh request for proposals they're thinking about some particular sticky wicket in child welfare that they want organizations around the country to try to help develop some best practices so that year they were looking at permanency for older youth and at that time Minnesota uh did a little bit of research and discovered about 96% of the kids who were state wards at age 15 in Minnesota could expect to age out of care without adoption. And they thought those numbers were not great and they wanted to create a project to try to increase them. So they came to me and I worked with the Department of Human Services to write a plan for what became the homecoming project. And we got we got funded. I led that out of FAM for the full five years of the grant. And Melissa Sherlock, who's now at Hennepin County uh, but was HS at the time, did an amazing job supporting the work of that project. You know, half of Minnesota counties and pretty much every private agency participated in some way uh, with you know, youth referrals and families participating. We used child-specific recruitment and youth engagement strategies and achieved permanency for 57 out of the 100 kids that we worked with. And so I'm getting to the part about ampersand. (laughs) (laughs) So our findings and practice suggestions and stuff were distributed across the state. And many of them have now become standard practice in Minnesota. As that project was wrapping up, Jen Brown, who was one of the permanency specialists, and I began talking about what each of us was going to do when we became unemployed after the (laughs) homecoming project ended. And we ended up deciding that we wanted to found a nonprofit that would focus on achieving permanency for older youth. There was still a real gap for that group, for teenagers at that time. So we opened the doors of Ampersand Families in October 2008. I like to talk a little bit just about the name because it's still really special to me. I I think it's a great name. And a very dear friend who we lost in 2020 came up with the idea for the name and I still think she nailed it. So ampersand, as you may or may not know, is the Latin word for the and symbol. And and connects words and people, it means more. It means more relationships, more more youth voice, more family. It's about adding people to kids' lives rather than taking away or severing relationships. So I think it's kind of a cool name and yeah, that is kind of a, a neat great- organization. That's a great history and background about all of that. Yeah, actually. thanks. I, I I think it's neat. I, you know, it's kind of a goofy name, but <laughs> I, think it, I think it gets the point across. It does. Well, and I,
0: I you know, I think we can all appreciate to your work for, for advocating for those older teens because people think, well, they're set in their ways, they're difficult, they're hard to handle and I don't have any firsts with them. So I think you're
1: just, you've been an important voice for that age group. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people are really afraid of teenagers too. Oh, completely. You know, So yeah, the fact that you're out there advocating for them is um, rare and a beautiful thing.
2: Oh, thanks very much. I think everything you guys are saying is completely true. People are afraid of teenagers and they're particularly afraid of teenagers who have been severed from everyone and everything they know because, you know, whether they say hurt people, hurt people.
0: Yeah. And this leads me into our next question. Um, so you at Ampersand, you really became a strong advocate for kinship care and advocating for foster youth to make sure their voices are heard. Did you think this would become your focus? I mean, it sounds like it's always kind of been, um, but did Ampersand actually give you that platform?
2: Yeah, thanks for that question, Chris. So my whole career, I think has, has been grounded in the principle of nothing about me without me in terms of insisting that youth have a place at the table um, in terms of the decisions being made about their lives and in helping improve direct practice and policy. When we started Ampersand Families, we used a model that's called the circle of courage to help us think about how we'd function and what our values would be. and it's still a model that I really uh, appreciate. And basically, it's a model for positive youth development that uses a medicine wheel to show how the concepts of mastery, belonging, independence, and generosity are core to adolescent development, and and for all of us, how we live as human beings. So I have gone back to that book by Martin Brokenleg, Steve Van Bakker, and Larry Brento over and over again during my career. Anyhow, Anyone who's really listening to young people in the child welfare system will eventually have no choice but to understand that young people want help for their families. They want their moms and dads to have access to the things they need to be able to safely care for their kids. They want the adults in their life to have access to living wage jobs and health care and affordable housing and mental and chemical health care. They want to live in low violence environmentally safe communities with access to food and activities for them to do in effective schools. They want to see the kinds of supports that we provide foster and adoptive families to be accessible to their their parents so they can be at home with them. And the more I came to understand this truth, the more my career kind of had to shift to do whatever I can do to help build, restore, strengthen relative kin, community, and cultural connections for youth Who've already been severed or separated rather from those Mm -hmm. connections. And so I I think the more I listen to young people, the more it's clear that we have to engage relatives and kin. And I know that they can't always be the place where kids are gonna live. I get that. Um, But lots of times they can. And even when they're not, we cannot have an old school system that throws those people away it's, it's not good for anybody. Right.
1: Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you're still with ampersand families a few hours a week as the permanency innovation and consultation director. So tell us what has been keeping you busy with the remainder of your time,
2: if you have. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Thanks for asking about that, Sunny. So my work with ampersand is pretty special to me, even though it, really just a few hours a week at this point. Thanks to the Sauer Family Foundation, I have, right now have the honor of supporting Andai Young's effort efforts to, to build a kinship program with the youth they serve. So we're integrating the values and practices of relative and kin search and engagement, along with the critical role that community and cultural connections play to see if we can strengthen the support network around the youth they serve. So we want youth to know that they have people in places where they belong, because being in foster care or experiencing homelessness in young adulthood can often leave youth deeply disconnected from human relationships. And frankly, human relationships are the thing that helps create a, a satisfying life. Right. And, you know, as I said in my intro, my full-time job right now is a temporary position at at Department of Human Services, writing child foster care licensing guidelines. And once those are published, I'll spend some time helping with the rollout, um, and in particular, co-hosting several information sessions to help folks understand what's in them. So that's how I keep busy these days.
1: Is that all? (laughs) all. Yeah, that's it, huh?
2: (laughs) Interrupted by wonderful conversations with delightful people like you.
0: I'm sure the job sounds to some like, oh my gosh, child foster care licensing guidelines. But I mean, I couldn't think of a more perfect person to be in that role with given your history and connections and all you've done for that community. So... No. I mean, Thanks it's- for
2: that. I, you know, I think that Department of Human Services did something really smart when they hired, you know, I am in the child safety and permanency area. So in the foster care unit and my colleague, April Grissom is in licensing and brings, she brings 20 years experience doing licensing, which I have you know, done licensing, but that wasn't the main thing always that I was doing. And I think we bring interesting perspectives. I think Department of Human Services did a really smart thing. I think by bringing in both perspectives, to I'm, I'm pretty proud of the document we're putting together. So, be on be on the lookout for that. You'll see announcements when it's done. Yes. When do you expect it to be wrapping up? Um, soon. soon. Next couple. Next, you'll start seeing. You'll start seeing stuff about information sessions in the next couple of months. Okay. We'll keep a lookout for that. Um, People yeah.
0: weigh in, can foster families and other members weigh in on policy changes and things like that, guidelines?
2: So there's not, so in the guidelines, there's not a much policy change, there's policy clarification, there has been a huge amount of stakeholder engagement in the writing of these. So you may or may not, you maybe didn't necessarily see any of that. So we sent surveys out to many thousand foster parents, current and former, um, and hundreds of licensing workers. And then we did engagement groups with both relative and non-relative foster parents. We did engagement groups with workers. We had a work group that had many community advocates from lots, you know, from several different organizations that are involved in this. Um, all of those, there's actually a web, an engagement website page that has the summaries from all of that engagement. So hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people have participated in wow. some way in in, in shaping what, the content is in these guidelines. I'm, I'm actually really proud of the engagement work that we did. Oh, we talked with youth. We had several listening sessions or, or focus groups with young people. So I'm, I'm very proud of the engagement we did. So at this point, you know, I, I'm not asking for a ton of feedback at this point, but there's yeah. been a lot of involvement in the writing of them.
0: Good to know. Sorry I got you sidetracked.
2: <laughs> no, that's, no, it's a good question and an important question. It shows that you're Thinking about the kind of stuff we should be thinking about is who's at the table. It matters who's at the table. (laughs) Definitely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it takes someone who has personal experience to be able to corral all of the responses and put it into something readable. So good for you. Wow.
2: Well, you haven't (laughs) read it yet, but it'll be, it's definitely (laughs) readable. It's it's a significant document. I I hope it will be as helpful to people, particularly to licensors and placing workers and to foster parents as as what we think it's going to be.
1: It will be. So I hear that you won a national award a few years back, and we're invited to the Voice for Adoption Reception in Washington, D.C. in 2017. Yay! Yay! So don't be shy (laughs) to talk about all of your awards and recognitions, because you absolutely deserve the spotlight.
2: Oh boy, yeah, we talked about this, a little uncomfortable (laughs) with this, but I'm going to jump in. You told me to jump in, so I'm going to. So I have been humbled and honored several times with recognition um, from organizations I respect. And as I was preparing for this interview, I got to thinking about the fact that all of the recognition I've received over the years has been about my efforts to push for change and how we go about the work of supporting children, youth, and families. And I really, I think that speaks to a hunger that exists in the field for people who are willing to move beyond what's comfortable to speak up and to push hard for common sense solutions. And I really do. I think we need helpers who make sure that we don't lose focus on the pers- purpose of child welfare. And in my mind, that's primarily to support families' ability to care for their children and for children to maintain critical connections to relatives, kin, community, and culture while the adults are trying to figure it all out. So I am, I'm grateful to the Children's Law Center and to FAM and to the Center for Advanced Studies in Child Welfare here in Minnesota for believing that my voice has been useful in efforts to create systemic change and to help us do better. But the Breaking Barriers Award and Adoption that you mentioned was really special recognition of the work of Ampersand Families and its amazing team in pushing for youth participation and involvement of relatives and kin in achieving permanency. So it was an honor for me to be able to speak at one of the Senate office buildings and to walk over and show the award to Senator Klobuchar. (laughs)
0: And fun fact, I was there and got to see you, accept your award, and I heard your speech, and it was great. I was there with one of my families who was selected for the state of Minnesota.
2: That, so. Yeah, it was a fun event, wasn't it? Voice it really was. was a nice job. And there was some legislature, legislators there, so we got to you know rub elbows. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really cool. neat. I think it's fun that you were there. That's neat. Yeah. So... I have one more thing to say about awards, if that's okay, but it's not really about about me. (laughs) I have been in really public facing roles and much of the work I've done has been fairly high profile. So I think it's really easy for people to think of me when they're considering who to recognize with, with an award that their organization gives annually. That said, I think there are tons of people in this state working incredibly hard to make a difference for youth and families and those people too often don't get recognized. So if you'll indulge me, I'd like to do that right now. Indulge. Indulged. (laughs) Thank you to caseworkers on the front line who are responsible for excruciating child protection and placement decisions, and to permanency specialists building relationships with trust who have, uh, I'm sorry, with relationships with youth Um, who have every reason to think that adults are a mess (laughs) and creatively seeking permanency options from within the youth's own network, to kinship workers searching for and engaging with family members to talk with them about a beloved relative who's entered foster care and seeking their help, to staff at Department of Human Services whose knowledge of policy, statute, and rule is astounding as is their ability to partner with counties and agencies and tribes to come up with solutions. To the advocates and former former youth in care and adults who were adopted as children, and GALs and attorneys and the ombuds people and others who help youth grow in their understanding um, of their own leadership and advocacy skills and to help them exert their rights. And thank you to people in leadership at nonprofits who work so incredibly hard to provide effective inspiring services, to treat staff well and to balance budgets, to foster guardianship and adoptive parents who do the day-to-day lift of walking beside children and youth as they grow and learn and heal. Thank you to organizations like FAM, and to licensors who provide support to those families. Thank you to people working for System Transformation to help us envision a new, better way of supporting families who are struggling. Thank you to folks who are working with parents who have lost their children to the child welfare system, helping them process, and manage grief, and to prepare for whatever the future holds. And thank you to aunties and uncles and grandparents and family friends who step forward to care for a relative child. Who has found themselves in this bewildering system? So yes, I am proud and grateful for the recognition I've received, including being asked to talk to you guys or with you guys today. It does feel good to be seen, and I am deeply conscious and thankful for so many others out there doing this work every day.
0: Thank you, Michelle. And I feel like we need like a sound effect, like applause or something, for that. Yeah. Well, As you always yeah. seem to around your awards and accolades to others so it's just humbling and and you really deserve all of the awards and a huge thank you thank you for your years of work and advocacy for youth in the child welfare system and their families in Minnesota and nationwide
2: yeah chris thank you that's really nice i have had a a really interesting and fun career and i've had i've been incredibly lucky in opportunities that have been made available to me. And so it's not, my privilege is not lost on me. Yeah. Well, it's not all about luck, but it's a lot (laughs) of hard work in there too.
0: (laughs) So it's, it's just good to hear that you're you're still at it. Slower. I'm a lot slower than I used (laughs) to be.
1: Well, I think it's really amazing that someone who um, started off in foster care is ending at the tail end you know the that you're also still with it, so I I love that.
2: Um, yeah, I got some. I have some more years left in me. I don't. You know, we'll see. We'll see what opportunities come. I think I still have some usefulness.
1: Oh, absolutely! <laughs> you're only twenty nine. You're only twenty nine. So. Oh yeah, that's
2: hilarious. right. It's, it's a little um, early to throw in the towel. I'm only twenty nine.
1: Yeah, and I didn't mean that like at the end of your career, but I'm just saying that you've come so far. That it it just feels like it's towards that end, but I didn't mean the yeah.
2: end. I think um, it, I you know I think Sunny it would be interesting sometime, and it's probably a whole different podcast topic, but to to really talk about those of us with lived experience who are who are working in the field in various ways. I mean, I I think you know in some ways it's a cliche. There's a lot of people talking about lived experience, right? Um, but I do think it would be interesting have some conversation to see I, I don't even know what the question is but for for some conversation about the impact that those of us with lived experience have had and the, the sort of different perspective that that we bring to lots of organizations around the state. I mean there there are a lot right. of us out here. I don't I am not unique in that way there's a lot of us but I you know and I also think it's worth the field thinking about that so many of us with lived experience have found our way to work in this field. And I, I think that there's several messages we could take from that. Um, and one of them is that the impact or the reach of these you know, some, you know experiences that had started when we were quite young extends always in our life that th- these decisions that are getting made aren't just decisions happening to kids these are decisions that impact people's entire life and you know for a lot of us ends up in our careers and I, i i just i think it would be an interesting conversation to explore with several professionals who bring you know foster care or adoption histories
1: okay so do you have any last thoughts maybe what an everyday person could do to make a difference or be that brave voice for
2: change? So I do. Um, I appreciate you warning me ahead of time that you were gonna ask me that, (laughs) so I was able to think about it. But I do, I've got three things. Uh, One, I would say, you know, if you're an everyday person and you know someone who's struggling to care for their kids, reach out to help. Number two, if you're able, To be a buddy family or a foster parent or an adoptive parent, uh, consider doing so. We desperately need people who are open to providing trauma-informed, family-honoring, culturally responsive care to children who are hurting. And then number three, this is a real simple, this is just a really small (laughs) thing, Um, but advocate for living wage jobs, uh, affordable housing, effective schools, mental and chemical health care and activities for kids in our most neglected neighborhoods. That would help reduce the kid, the number of kids who need our services in the first place.
0: Those are three very important last thoughts on how to make a difference, and we'll start chiseling away at them. Yeah, could you take care of that? Maybe yes, we'll take wrap, care of it. wrap it up by
2: next week.
0: <laughs> Get on that. Chop, chop,
2: Time's <laughs> wasted.
0: Hey, Michelle, I have, so I've heard the story, so I just want you to confirm if it's true or not, that I believe it was at a task force where child recruiters or permanency specialists present their youth that they're working with to workers, and you got (laughs) up and spoke about this youth who had all of these troubles and behaviors, was angry and um, not going to school, maybe not doing well in school, and... Everyone was just kind of like, oh, here we go. And it was, you were describing yourself. Is that true?
2: So that's, that, no. So I think, you know, for people who have experienced those kinds of conversations, right? Where we're trying to, because you have to, how else do you, how how else do you do conversations about kids who are waiting, right? And, right, you have to figure out some way to share information, but I, for a long time, I found some of those conversations to be painful because I feel like we are trained to focus and to articulate the clinical difficult things about, you know, kids because we're, we're worried. We want families to be prepared, right? And, and I think right. programs write down all the difficult things, right? They don't write, they don't write down the, the easygoing humorous stuff, right? They write down the difficult things. So the profile I gave was actually, this was probably almost 20 years ago, but it was <laughs> about myself except currently. So I said, you know, person who, so I just, I need a little bit of help. And I went through this whole thing about how, you know, challenging sometimes in relationships and, you know, often woke up with bed head and, was, you know, not in the best physical shape and wasn't always a great, didn't, you know, wasn't always a great friend, didn't always call their friends as often as they should. And I kind of went down a whole list of things. And then I said, does anybody uh, know anyone who wants to date me? (laughs) (laughs) And it got some people amused, some people angry. A couple of people got up and walked out. They were very upset. felt like I was making fun. And I was, I was trying Using And I I guess I understand why people, why a couple of people were offended, but it really, I was trying to raise up how we talk about young people that, you know, that we have to recognize that they are people and complex and that none of us, none of us is going to build a human relationship based on the worst thing we ever did. Right, the 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 behavior that I've done in my life that I'm most embarrassed about, or that I feel the, the the worst about, or the meanest thing I ever said to a friend, if I were a kid in care, those are the things that are going to get shared about me, and that is like that's not the, that's that's not the right. totality, and so yeah, that's kind of interesting. That story <laughs> hangs around. Yeah, needless to say, nobody nobody sent me a suggestion for a date. Oh, dang. <laughs> Well, it just goes to show
0: that you're always trying to use those real life experiences and and just get things down to an everyday level.
2: That I did. opening about things. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. It didn't win me a lot of friends, but I found it thoroughly entertaining.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time, Michelle, and just keep on doing what you do. And we appreciate Thank you so much.
2: Today. Thank you, both, both of you for thinking of me. This has been a lot of fun. It really was delightful. Yeah.
0: And let us know when you want to start that next podcast series.
2: Totally right. That's right on top of my list. Perfect. <laughs> oh, unless you mean the one about workers. Is that what you mean? Yes. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah,
0: definitely. Excellent.
2: Right.
0: Thanks so much. Thanks again. Take, Take care. care. Thank you. Before we wrap up, Minnesota has a program called HELP that offers a warm line to resources for adoptive, foster, and kinship families, as well as professionals. The HELP program also provides a network of adoption-competent, trauma-informed therapists statewide. Go to our website, fosteradoptmn.org, and click on HELP to check it out. Thank you so much for joining us today for Let's Talk. Please subscribe, rate and review wherever you listen to our podcast and tune in again soon.